Good morning and welcome to our Bible study, Pastor's Bible study here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's. And in our traditional way, we're going to welcome our guests with us on KFUO AM, 8.50 AM, and listening worldwide at KFUO.org. We're going to be looking, as we do each Sunday, at the scripture lessons assigned for the following Sunday. So we'll be looking today at the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday, July 15. But before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your mercies are new to us each and every morning, and we thank you for your grace, your undeserved, unmerited love for us through your Son, Jesus Christ who came and suffered and died and rose once again, triumphing over sin, death, and the grave. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon our study. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one little commercial before we get started here. Uh, we are at St. Paul's conducting an all-congregational survey uh, wanting to gather thoughts and opinions from members concerning the next senior pastor here at St. Paul's. And you can do that online. If you have not filled one out or uh, submitted one yet, we also have paper copies available. They're on the back uh, table here, and you can take one with you and fill it out. We're trying to get as many surveys done and, and submitted as we possibly can. Uh, I've had a couple of people tell me, well, we're happy with the way things are going here at St. Paul's. We don't need to fill one out. So I just want to dispel, this is not to complain. This is just to submit your opinions. If you think things are fine, we want to hear that too, okay? So anyway, they're, they're back here, and you can take one. You can even take it home and bring it to the church office, or again, it's available online as well. All right, we're going to take a look, uh, first of all, at the Old Testament lesson for next Sunday from the book of Amos, uh, Amos chapter 7, verses 7 through 15. First of all, I guess a little context uh, when we look at the book of Amos, and it is one of God's, I would say, most stringent uh, judgments uh, in the Old Testament upon his people, we have a bit of a time frame, a bit of a context for this. We're not precisely sure on the exact year, but if you look at Amos 1, verse 1, he names the king in the north and the king in the south that are operating or are ruling uh, when he is is serving as a prophet. He mentions King Uzziah of uh, Judah, and King Uzziah ruled from 792 to 740 B.C., so we know right away it's within that 52-year uh, time frame. But then he also mentions King Jeroboam, and that would be Jeroboam ben Joash of Israel, or of the north, and that king ruled from 793 to 753 B.C. And then he also says in 1 verse 1, that he stopped two years before uh, a, a major earthquake shook uh, things there. And we know that that happened in 760. He's likely referring to the one that happened in 760 B.C. So putting all that together, <laughs> if I lost everybody, uh, we think probably somewhere in the 780s, 770s B.C., okay, would be a, a good guess. And uh, uh, also then let's remember what happened eventually in 722 B.C., and that's when God raises up the Assyrians, and the Assyrians come and decimate uh, the north. And frankly, we never hear much about the northern kingdom after that. So at the time that Amos is prophesying, 
We've got 40, 50 years, something like that, before the God is going to bring the curtain down on them. And just a little bit of, uh, again, of context, this was a time of great prosperity for the northern kingdom. Uh, things were going along so well, uh, I guess in modern terms we would say the economy was booming at this time, okay? And there was so much prosperity that they just thought that they had God's unlimited favor, that they could do no wrong in God's eyes, that God was for them from beginning to end and nothing was going to harm them whatsoever. In other words, they were convinced that things were great. And uh, we won't look this up, but uh, it even surprised me when I read it over again. In, in uh, Amos 3.15, just to give you an idea of, of the prosperity, uh, God talks about he's going to bring down both their... Basically, people had enough money to have two homes, one summer and one winter. And uh, God makes reference to that, that he's going to bring them both down. You know, <laughs> one's going to survive. So this is what I mean. Things were just so prosperous and uh, people thinking things are fine. When actually what was appearing to be fine on the outside was actually rotten to the core. The people were worshiping the false god of the Canaanites, Baal. And there were the so-called high places, which were literally places where they would worship the false gods. They were called high places because usually they were in elevated spaces, elevated places. I guess they thought they were closer to the false god if they were up there. And uh, so there, there's rampant idolatry. There's rampant oppression of the poor. And so you'll see throughout the time, uh, th throughout the book of Amos, that he takes aim at all of these things. The idolatry, of course, was the, the main issue. But then there was, again, this oppression and injustice and people basically using other people uh, for their own gain, okay? And along comes Amos, and you can guess that uh, Amos is not going to be well-received by the people. They don't want to hear it. They absolutely do not want to hear what he has to say. And uh, we'll, we'll see that the professional prophets at that time, the guys who were the paid prophets, were running around saying, everything's great, nothing to worry about here. And uh, you'll see Amos is going to be asked to leave. They, don't, they just don't want to hear uh, from him any longer, okay? So uh, anyway, let's uh, start then at verse 7. And uh, this is what he showed me, God showed him. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, let's stop for a second and figure out what is a plumb line. Uh, everybody know what a plumb line is? You've got, a, you've got a string, usually it's a string with some sort of a weight down at the bottom, right? And you put it up against the wall and it's used to establish a straight line. In fact, sometimes they will be, have chalk on them, you pull it back and snap a chalk line. But anyway, the idea is to have a straight line, okay? So he sees this vision and God is standing there with a plumb line. And the plumb line, of course, is just a, uh, an image that God is going to be using to show how crooked and out of line his people really are. It's just an, an image of, you might say an image of justice or of, of righteousness. That's the plumb line, and God's people are out of whack, we might say, uh, as far as that plumb line is concerned. Okay? So he says, with a plumb line in his hand, verse 8, And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. <laughs> it's going to... Goes, plods along a little bit here first. Uh, then the Lord said, 
Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. Now notice here, God's, it's kind of interesting that God still uses the phrase, my people here. And many times when he is speaking, he doesn't speak of them still as my people. So you can see here, there's, there's still that tie that God feels with his people here. He says, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will never again pass them by. Now, in, in the one hand, this might, what, he, what he's meaning to say here is that he's never again merely going to walk by and ignore what they are doing. Okay? I will never again pass by my people. In other words, I'm not going to just walk and look the other way. Okay? The time for judgment is coming. The plumb line is there. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. It's interesting here. He, he talks about the high places that he is going to make desolate. In other words, as I said, those high places are the places where they would actually go and worship the false gods, especially Baal and Asherah. And God says, I'm going to level those places, okay? So I'm not going to just pass by anymore. I'm going to uh, establish the plumb line, and I'm going to level those places. And he refers, it's kind of interesting, he refers back to Isaac and to Israel, to, to Jacob, in, in a sense here, reminding them, you know, without even saying it, reminding them of the covenant that he made with them and how, again, they have, they have uh, uh, destroyed and not followed the covenant. They have been faithless and worshiped false gods. And I will rise, notice, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. And again, that's Jeroboam ben Joash, the, the ruler of the north. Uh, I will rise against him with the sword, in other words, with warfare. And so eventually that, that is going to come. Uh, so notice he goes after both the religious places, the false belief places, and against the government. He is going to lay it all bare and destroy it all. Okay? Then verse 10. Now, what's, what, now we move to the reaction. What's the reaction going to be? Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. So here's the guy. Am, uh, Amaziah is the uh, priest, we might say, of Bethel. Bethel was the place in the north where they were supposed to, where God's people north were worshiping. And he, unfortunately, is going to be a corrupt priest. So he sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, so this, uh, this prophet Amaziah is going to, you might say, squeal on uh, what Amos is saying here. He says to Jeroboam, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. So what is Amaziah? Amaziah goes to uh, Jeroboam. What's he, in effect, charging Amos with here? Treason, yeah, treason. Um, you know, it, it sort of reminds you of Jesus being accused of being what? The king of the Jews, remember? And remember when the, in the great irony, when the chief priests and the scribes say, we have no ruler but Caesar. And of course, they couldn't stand Caesar. But, you know, it, it's almost the same thing. He's being accused here of treason. In other words, this guy is running around, spreading, uh, speaking against uh, you against the house of Israel, 
Okay? And the people cannot bear his words. The land cannot bear his words. Again, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. All right, so verse 12. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. In other words, go down south, go to the southern kingdom. He's actually from Tekoa, which is in the south in Judah. So uh, Amaziah is in effect telling him, go home. You know, get out of here, go down to the south, eat bread there. In other words, make your living there and uh, prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel. So he's banning him from prophesying at Bethel in the north. For notice here, it is the king's sanctuary. Now, what's wrong with that statement? It is the king's sanctuary. Whose sanctuary is it really? God's sanctuary. See how things had become? It was all about the king. It was all about prosperity. It's the king's sanctuary. Well, no, it's not. Okay? And I always like to point out there is a parallel here that um, sometimes pastors could, could be tempted, I'll put it that way, could be tempted to think of a congregation as what? As their congregation. No, it's not. <laughs> it's the Lord's church, right? And we are just the... Uh, the under-shepherds along the way, of a, usually a long a list or long uh, train of them. But it is not the king's sanctuary. And it is a temple of the kingdom. No, it's not. It's the Lord's temple, you know. It is not theirs. So he is now, Amos is now banned from Bethel. He's being kicked out and simply for speaking the truth that God is coming and there is going to be justice that the idolatry is going to be dealt with, the high places are going to be destroyed, as is the government. Okay? Now, going on, verse 14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. In other words, he's saying, I'm not, not one of those corrupt prophets up here in the north. I'm not even the son of one of those corrupt prophets here in the north. But I was a herdsman. We know he was a shepherd and also a dresser of sycamore trees or tended to trees. And notice here, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So what is Amos doing here? He's establishing that his authority doesn't come because he's simply born a son of a prophet or is a prophet, but his authority comes from, from the Lord himself. And he doesn't say it. But you almost get a sense of, in contrast to these false prophets you've got up here, you know. He's saying, I wasn't one of those guys, but the Lord called me. The Lord took me from what I was doing and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now notice again there, God says, my people. That's a term of endearment. And so, basically, uh, we've got unbelief and we've got the uh, absolute... Um, destroying of the covenant of God's, that God made with his people, and God is saying the time for judgment is going to come. And again, the people have about 40, 50 years before it's going to be, the north is going to be completely wiped out. The Assyrians, unlike the Babylonians, when the Assyrians came through, it was terror and it was mass exportation. Uh, so they would, they would take people uh, away into exile, and they were ruthless. And again, we never heard much uh, about the northern kingdom. In fact, later on, uh, the people up north, 
You're going to have the Samaritans up north later on, and they're always going to be looked down upon by the Jews as the people who were left and who intermarried with the Canaanites who came and were brought in uh, at times by the Assyrians as well. So at any rate, uh, th this will happen. They've got about 40 or 50 years before it's going to happen, and God, through Amos, is trying to get them to repent. All right? All right, so that's the Old Testament lesson for next week. Any uh, either questions, comments? Yes, uh, the question was, what about some of the uh, altars and other things? Now, the main temple was down in Jerusalem, of course, and that's what later the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Judah in uh, 586 B.C. and take a lot of that stuff off to, to Babylon. What we've got here is Bethel, and when the kingdom divided, you had Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the, the sons, and uh, that's a long story, we won't get into that, but the northern kingdom wanted to try and establish a place sort of in contrast to Jerusalem, or sort of as competition, you might say, for Jerusalem. And so they were worshiping at Bethel at, at that point in time. Yeah. And they had their own priests up there, and it was, again, sort of a, well, if the South is doing this, we don't have to go there. We can have our own up here, and that's kind of the way it developed. That's a, that's a real a broad summary, but that's kind of the way it developed. Okay? One thing I thought of when I was reading through this is, uh, and I think Pastor Smith kind of alludes to this a little bit in the sermon today, too, is that, you know, when things are going great and there's great prosperity, there's a uh, temptation, at least, to, spiritually speaking, kind of be a bit lax, right? And think, I maybe don't need God all that much. Things are just fine. Uh, don't bother me. I'm just fine. And we don't realize, uh, you know, the, the spiritual drift that, that we can easily fall into uh, when things are going so great. Um, I think of right after, you remember right after 9-11, and church attendance was up, I think just about across the board, for about, what, three weeks or so? <laughs> Two or three weeks? And then we're kind of back into our, it's, it's sometimes in life, it's sort of a microcosm uh, or a big picture of how our lives can be at times, too, that when things are going along great, it's easy, or it can be easy, to keep God at an arm's distance. But it's when we do face hardships or we do face trials that we're kind of jerked back to reality and realize just how much we depend on God. We do so no matter what, but at least we, we, we realize how much we do when something is out of our control to be able to change in our life. And we simply call upon God and ask him, uh, so at any rate, that's kind of the way the people were at that point. I kind of wonder about, about us as a nation today. You know, are we kind of drifting in that same direction with great prosperity, incredible wealth, uh, and, and so on, and yet it seems spiritually at times that, that we're sort of adrift as, as well. And I don't like to get political here, but I'm just saying that I think there's a, there's a comparison that can be made uh, with us. Okay. Uh, anything else then, before we move on? We're going, to, we're going to go to the gospel lesson next. I'm going to take these out of order. All right. Oh, yes. Yes. By the way, it's good to have you guys back here visiting. Last half of verse 8. Okay. Yeah. He's saying, basically, I'm never again going to just walk on by and not notice these things. In other words, he's saying, in effect, he's saying, in the past, I kind of walked by and let, you know, I didn't, didn't stop or do anything. He's not going to do that anymore. He will never again merely walk by as if these things don't matter. It's kind of what he's saying there. Yes. Okay? 
All right, anything else? All right, let's go on to the gospel lesson. Now, boy, this is the, this is the summary of John the Baptist's execution. <clears throat> it follows, um, remember the, the gospel lesson for today, for those of you that were in uh, the early service here, the gospel lesson for today is that account in Mark of Jesus going back to his hometown and facing all kinds of ridicule and unbelief. He, could, he, didn't do, he only healed a few people there and moved on because of their unbelief, even in his own hometown. And they said, isn't this the son of Mary and so on? You know, who is this guy? What, what, what's he saying? So you've got that. Then you've got him sending out the 12, and they come back, and that's a good thing. They come back and they report the miracles that were done and so on. And then comes this report. And, boy, you've got to think, uh, things are not, this is not a, a very good time. Not a, not a time in terms of the ministry. He's rejected in his own hometown. Now comes the word of John the Baptist being executed. And so from, in terms of highs and lows, this is kind of a low time uh, as you read through the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Let's, let's read the whole thing and then go back, because I want to take this as a whole unit, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. King Herod heard of it. Uh, starting, I'm sorry, Mark 6, starting at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Isn't that one of the most gruesome uh, accounts? And one of the, I guess we could say, most obvious examples of just plain evil that you could possibly read, okay? So I guess the parallel here, usually the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson have some 
parallel theme or themes. You know, you've got Amos in the Old Testament who is proclaiming God's word in the midst of sin and unbelief. And the parallel here seems to be John the Baptist doing the exact same thing in the midst of evil that is happening in his day, this time with Herod. Now, going back, uh, Cain Herod, actually, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Herod the Great was the one who died uh, right at the, around the time of the birth of Jesus, shortly thereafter. Herod the Great was the one who was the great builder. He's called Herod the Great, uh, built uh, incredible uh, uh, places, uh, Caesarea uh, Maritime, Caesarea Philippi, and so on, uh, incredible builder and building projects. He dies. There are four, the Israel, the promised land is divided up into four uh, territories and rulers, uh, sons for the most part of Herod the Great. And this guy who is the, the this Herod is Herod Antipas. And I, all, I actually, I was thinking, I wish I had a board here to outline the family tree because it unfortunately has a lot of branches that uh, go across from each other, quite frankly. Uh, you may say, well, gee, what was so bad that he was married to his brother Philip, uh, who was a, a tetrarch or a ruler of another area, that he married his wife? This wife, Herodias, was also both of these guys' niece. Okay, let that sink in a little bit the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Okay? Everybody, everybody kind of got the picture now? Uh, now, what John the Baptist was saying was not to be done, uh, marrying your brother's wife, the idea that just took her and, and married her, but it's even, it's even worse than that in terms of the intermarrying of this family. And so John the Baptist is speaking the truth. Uh, speaking uh, law, God's law, uh, and as a result of that, did you, did you catch the difference in reaction? What kind of reaction did Herod have? Herod, uh, the one who's, you know, the, the one who married Philip's wife. Did you kind of catch what, what his reaction was to, toward John the Baptist? He listened to him and almost feared him and actually protected him. You kind of got the idea that he was very reluctant, in fact, would not do anything against John the Baptist. There is a parallel here a little bit with Jesus. Because, remember, did Pilate want to uh, kill Jesus and have him executed? No. He tried, he tried to release uh, Barabbas to them. They wouldn't have it. He finally washes his hands of the thing. He had been warned by his wife in a dream not to have anything to do with this guy. So there's a bit of a parallel here with the way John the Baptist, this relationship he has with Herod. So Herod even protects him, keeps him safe. Uh, we'll get into this here. I think he probably had him in that prison, perhaps for his own safety. But the wife Herodias, just the opposite. She holds a grudge against him. Why? Because he's calling out her sin, right? I mean, there's two reactions that you can have when someone points out something that's sinful that you're doing, right? And the one reaction, of course, and it's the reaction we would hope for, is repentance, you know, contrition and, and sorrow for that sin, repentance and so on. That's what we would hope for. The other reaction, however, which does happen at times, is people dig in their heels even more 
and are resentful, are angry. You know, who are you to tell me sort of a thing? And they get angry with you, and there's a, a grudge that results. That's where she was at, unfortunately, and uh, has it out for him. Uh, I was thinking there's also a parallel in the Old Testament. Do you remember a um, king's wife who got uh, uh, incensed with one of the prophets? Jezebel with Elijah, right? And pursues him, wants him killed. You know, uh, the same, uh, uh, may the Lord strike me if I don't do the same to you by this, uh, by, in, uh, after the prophets of Baal were, were consumed. So, going back here, King Herod heard of it in verse uh, 14. What's the it? It might have been the thing that's right before it in the text. That's the sending out of the 12. It might just be, though, a general reference to what Jesus was doing and, and his, uh, his uh, ministry. And it says there, Jesus' name had become known. And notice here, who they thought Jesus was. Uh, we get this later on when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am, right? Some say, what, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus, remember, will say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you get, that must have been sort of the word on the street, so to speak, that this guy, Jesus, who they're trying to figure out, and he was just in his hometown, and the people are saying, wait a minute, who is this guy? Is this the son of Mary? You know, and they're just trying to grapple with who is this guy. Some were saying he was John the Baptist come back from the dead, which tells you that at that time, people did believe in what? A possibility of the resurrection, right? The Sadducees did not, but uh, many Jews did. So that was one. Some said he's John the Baptist come back. Others said Elijah. Now, how do they think Elijah was going to come back? Well, there's a prophecy in the book of Malachi. We won't look it up now, but it's Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, that says Elijah will come uh, before that great day of the Lord. Now, Jesus says, he quotes that and acknowledges that, and who does Jesus say Elijah was? Elijah has come. He's who? John the Baptist. The one who came to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Elijah has come, Jesus would say, and they didn't listen to him. Okay, so that's why, they, see, the Jews knew the prophecies. They were looking for the, for the coming of the Messiah and expecting Elijah was going to come. Jesus says he came, and you didn't listen to him. Um, and, and they're trying to explain that is why these miraculous powers are at work with him, but others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So they're acknowledging, you know, that he's at least a prophet. But that's about it at this point. Um, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. You get the, you get the impression as you read through this that Herod was troubled by what happened, that he personally did not agree with the beheading. He was kind of a spineless guy, though, when you get down to it, you know. He makes this statement at this dinner, and it's in front of all of his nobles and all of his, some of his military leaders, and he's not going to back down because he made the statement. Well, if you're the king, you can do whatever you want, or if you're the ruler, you can do whatever you want. But you get the impression he is troubled by this. Notice he says, John, whom I beheaded. Um, and he did not, of course, do the beheading himself, but he knows he's responsible for it. Um, for it was Herod who had seized and bound him in prison. Uh, Herod had arrested him, apparently, earlier on 
We don't know if this was for Herodias, you know, that she asked him to do this, um, but had him in prison, perhaps to keep, her, keep him safe. Uh, and John again said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Um, she held a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death. Now, going up in verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. So again, Herod, when he heard John, concluded that this guy is a righteous, blameless man who is, in his heart of hearts, he must have known what, what John was saying was right and was true, and yet he, he wouldn't repent, and he noticed he kept him safe, probably from Herodias. is probably who he had to keep him safe from. Um, and yet he heard him gladly. He was greatly perplexed. You know, when John starts talking about the Savior, the Messiah, uh, Herod's probably, his, his head is swimming a bit here. He's perplexed. But yet he always, he heard him gladly, kept on hearing him gladly. Then, verse uh, 21, this gathering. Herod has got, uh, it says here, the nobles, they were probably the wealthy, sort of the aristocrats uh, of the territory. They are there. By the way, it's his birthday, you know, which is a Western. The Jews did not celebrate birthdays. This is a sort, of, sort of a Western custom. So he's got this big dinner going on. The military commanders are there. And then uh, leading men of Galilee, probably the sort of the second uh, straight strata of, of people. So you've got the real wealthy, you've got the military leaders, you've got the second strata of people. They had this big birthday celebration. A um, couple things. Obviously, it would, it would be a big banquet, probably lavish in terms of food and so on. And notice, the, what, what's the entertainment at the banquet? It's daughter of Herodias, uh, who comes in and dances. And a couple things. Um, how can you tell that the women are not in the room? She has to go out and ask her mother outside the room. This would be probably, we think, men only in this. The women would not even be in the room. Okay? They would be separated. And uh, this is for their entertainment, so to speak. Okay? So she comes in, does this dance. I'll let you put two and two together here. Uh, and they, he is so pleased, uh, her, uh, Herod is so pleased with her dance that he makes an open-ended offer. Whatever she wants, she can have up to half of my kingdom. Now, he's, that's sort of exaggeration. First of all, it wasn't his to give. He did, it wasn't his authority to give half the kingdom to her. But he's just, it's a way of, it's almost hyperbole. He's, he's saying, you know, anything you want, even up half the kingdom. Well, she doesn't even know what to ask for. She, she goes out and asks her mother, you know, what should I, what should I ask for? Uh, and, again, the head of John the Baptist. Now, again, going down here, he could have refused, couldn't he? He could have said, oh, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. I don't care what I said. We're not doing that. But he doesn't. He gives in. And he's going to, the irony here is that he wants to protect his own honor but he does so by committing a, a dastardly act uh, or consenting to it. And, you know, so they go, someone goes, and can you imagine, I mean, we, we just can't imagine this, that you're at this party, you're at this gathering, and they bring in a human head on a platter and present it, and that she's actually pleased with this. I mean, we can sit here and read through this kind of matter-of-factly, but just put yourself in that, 
spot. So I say one of the, one of the most gruesome and um, outright evil descriptions of sin that we have in all of Scripture. And so she brings it in, and basically this is the, the way John the Baptist died. Uh, this is the way he met his end. And um, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a, there's no, finally the disciples come, and they take his body. And so his body was around there somewhere as well, uh, and they bury it. Um, by the way, uh, his disciples uh, would most likely be John the Baptist's disciples. Remember, he had disciples, he had followers. And remember the one time they, they came to Jesus, and remember the question they asked him? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? Right? And Jesus says, go back and tell John what you see. The, the blind see, and so on. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah. In other words, I'm the fulfillment of what Isaiah predicted. But So John the Baptist had his disciples, had his followers as well, but he would always point to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? All right, let's stop there for a minute. Any uh, questions, comments? Yes, Don? Uh, the question was whether uh, he fathered this daughter or not. My recollection is no, that it was from another uh, husband with Herodias. Perhaps Philip. Perhaps Philip. Okay? Yes. Yeah. So the question is, why, why put this story here in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus, right after this, they just move on? And it's kind of plucked in right here. I mentioned that it's sort of, you get... In, in Mark, you get starting out, and you get all these miracles happening. You know, he's healing people, goes uh, to the land of the uh, Gerizines, the Gentiles, and remember, he he's, uh, takes the demons, and they go into the herd of pigs and go down, the, down into the water. Uh, I always say that's the first case of deviled ham, by the way, in the, in the scriptures. <laughs> and uh, they, they, heal, they heal. He's healing people right and left, and then all of a sudden, it... it shows that you almost think, boy, this is going to be just an unending rise and things are going great, and then all of a sudden you get this downfall. You get our gospel lesson for today where he's in his hometown and they vast unbelief. You get John the Baptist, the one who's pointing to Christ, beheaded like this. And you, you almost get the sense that Mark is, is showing, first of all, Jesus' authority over all these things when, when Mark starts out. His authority over demons, his authority over the Sea of Galilee, calms the storm, uh, healing people right and left and so on. And now it seems like we're getting, but here, remember how gruesome evil is. Evil and unbelief are. And you've got the fact that in, in his hometown that people can reject him, people can turn away from him. That's why, again, when God works through means... Like his word, he can be resisted. He can be rejected. And, you know, if we tell somebody about Christ and they don't believe, there were plenty of people who had Jesus face to face and they didn't believe, right? Sometimes people will say, oh, if I, would have been, if I could have been alive in Bible times, it would have been so much easier for me to believe. If I could have been right there with Jesus and, and watch him do these miracles, I surely would have believed. Well, look at all the people who didn't, Right? They, he can be resisted, and he was. And, and again, the, the face of evil um, is something we should, should never take lightly or never forget. Okay? 
That's, that's, my, uh, that's my guess. Uh, or uh, I, I might say a, a theory as to why it's kind of in here like this. It just kind of plopped in there. Okay, anything else? You know, uh, there, uh, Dr. Veltz in his commentary um, kind of makes some parallel or some contrasts with King Herod, King Herod, and Jesus, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is Herod associating with? Only the upper crust, right? The nobles. The who does Jesus associate with? The poor, the lowly, the diseased, the outcast, the people that you know Herod and others wouldn't even want uh, anything to do uh, with. Um, Herod, the, the king, cowers in the face of, uh, you know, people and so on, and Jesus does not, right? He could, have, he could have saved himself. Pilate told him that, you know? Don't you know I have the power to release you? He didn't. He went to the cross for all of us. So, you know, there, there's this great contrast. Um, uh, and, and King Herod presides over the death of an innocent man, and Jesus, an innocent man, dies willingly for us and for all people. So there's quite a contrast there between those two, and, uh, and great parallels also with the story of Christ. Uh, you get the disciples, just like you had, uh, you had them, uh, people come and take Jesus' body and put it in the tomb, and his, John the Baptist's disciples uh, do the same thing with him. Okay? Um, anyway, so let's move on. In. If there are no other comments or questions, let's move on. We've got, we're going to go to the epistle lesson. And this is from Ephesians, and we're going to be looking, when we read this, at the longest sentence in the New Testament. So if you're ever on Jeopardy and they ask you, uh, what's the, they're, they're, in Greek, there are 204 Greek words in this sentence. It is, it, there's no period, Okay. And uh, usually translations will try to leave it open-ended like this and not put in periods where they're, they're not. And by the way, right after this is the second longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, uh, verses 15 through 23, and there are 169 Greek words in that one. So Paul is off to the races here uh, with this, and just it's an un, uh, unbroken prayer. Now, this prayer in... Verse in our lesson, uh, verses uh, 3 through 14, is a form, there's a special form of, of a prayer that the Israelites, the Jews had. It's called a Barakah prayer. And Barakah is the translation for blessed or blessed be. And it's divided up, and we have examples of There's about 40 examples in the Old Testament. Uh, one of them why don't we, we've got a little bit of time, why don't we take a look uh, at Exodus 18, if you have Bible here, Exodus 18, and I'll show you uh, where one example is in the Old Testament, Exodus 18, and we want to look at uh, 10 and 11, okay, Exodus 18, 10 and 11, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they deal arrogantly with the people. Okay? That's one example. The, it always starts with the words, Blessed be the God of, 
And it always talks about God in the third person. It never says you or me or we. It's always talking about God in the third person, and it always recites what God has done, the great things God has done. Uh, when you look at the verses that we have, uh, it's actually verses 1 through 6 talk about the Father. Verses 7 through 12 talk about Christ. And verses 13 and 14 talk about the Holy Spirit. So you have the Trinity laid out in this beautiful, nonstop uh, prayer called a Berakah, uh, which again has Hebrew uh, uh, significance. All right, let's not stop. Let's go right through it. Verse 14, then we'll go back, all right? We'll just read it like it was written. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in time before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, now we're going to shift to Christ. We were just talking about the Father. Now we're going to talk about Christ. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now we shift to the Holy Spirit. So that we who were first to belong to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I'm sorry, here we go. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <laughs> uh, a little much to do in one breath. I don't know who's going to read the scripture lessons next week, but this is one you've got to be thinking about before you get up there and just start rattling it off, because it, it is long and unending, okay? All right, let's go back. Remember, it starts off, Barakar, blessed be, okay? So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're talking here, we know we're talking about the Father, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, okay? And uh, in the heavenly places could mean either heaven or even the spiritual authorities, spiritual places, uh, even as he what? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, obviously, this section and few verses to come, we're going to be talking about what is commonly referred to as predestination, or God choosing some before the foundation of the world in Christ. Uh, and let's just review, uh, this is meant to be a doctrine that brings us much comfort and peace, but at times we can turn it into something that it's not intended to be. We believe that God chose, in fact, Scripture says, God chose some before the foundation of the world who would be saved through Christ not apart from Christ or apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, but through Christ. Now, we don't go the other side and say that 
God chose then some to be condemned or to be damned. Uh, we do not go to that side. The Reformed churches, followers especially of Calvin, uh, theologian Calvin, would go that far and would say that God chose you to be saved, you to be condemned. That's sometimes referred to as double predestination. Now, why do we not believe in double predestination? There's a couple of reasons. One, there's no passage in Scripture that we would say describes that actually happening. Okay? But secondly, there are passages in Scripture where God has revealed that he wants none to perish, but all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? Uh, we've got that in Ezekiel, we've got that in 2 Timothy, we've got that throughout the scriptures. Wants all to be saved. So, we don't believe in a double predestination. Do we believe that God chose some people because he had foreknowledge of them and said, Whoa, look at what a stellar person they are. I'm going to choose them because they are such a stellar person. No, we don't believe that either. Uh, in fact, we, are, we do believe what scripture says, that we are all equally sinful in the sight of God and are saved only and exclusively by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which also is worked by him in us. Okay? So we want to we wanna steer clear of both of those what we would say would be false beliefs. We do not believe that God purposely chose some people then to be damned and that he chose any of us because of something good in us or even chose us because we would end up believing. It's nothing in us at all. It is all God's grace. Okay? Now, the big question that people will ask and we cannot answer is, why some and not others? Can't tell you. Don't know. And this is where we as Lutherans, this is one of the things I, I like the most about being, one of the things I like about being a Lutheran, I'll say, is that when we get to points like this, we say, you know, I can't, I can't answer that. I don't know. We, can, we only quote what Scripture quotes and go no further than that. See, And where, where we don't go with the Reformed is they will say, well, it's only logical then that if God chose some to be saved, that he chose others to be condemned. And we would say, well, the problem is, again, our logic is not backed up by any Scripture. And so we say, no, we're, we're just not going to go there. We are okay as Lutherans leaving some things in tension, some things that we simply cannot explain, and not going to, to, to our reason uh, to try and override what scripture, where Scripture is silent. And so we can't answer that question. We simply can't answer it. Okay? Now, how is, this a, how is this a doctrine of comfort for you? If you are baptized and you are in the Word of God and you have faith, what can you be concluding about yourself? That before the foundation of the world, what? God chose you. Isn't that an incredible, when you stop and think about it, an incredible thing? That before the foundation of the world, without any merit on your part whatsoever, nothing good in you that caused him to do it, simply by his grace, okay? And so it is meant to be a, a doctrine of great comfort for all of us. So that's what he says there. He chose us in Christ, no, not apart from Christ, but through Christ. It's sort of the choosing is going to happen, 
And, but Christ is going to be the, the way or the means through which it's going to be fulfilled. Okay? His, his plan, his planning is going to be fulfilled. So before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that's the result, right? Through Christ, we are holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Now, it says here, as sons. Now, is that sexist? Should we change that? Because, um, you know, we should make it gen should we make it gender neutral? As, why, why, would, why would Paul emphasize the fact that he chose us as sons? What did sons have back in Bible times that daughters did not have? Inheritance, yes. This is not meant to be sexist, you know. We're not going to change it to children, even though it says sons. There's a message here that he chose us to be, we are his adopted children, aren't we? And we do have an inheritance through Christ. Uh, according to the purpose, again, his good, you can translate uh, that purpose, good pleasure also, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, who is the beloved here? It's capitalized. Jesus, right. Uh, at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? The beloved is Christ here. And... Again, the, the very fact that God would choose us before the foundation of time in his grace does lead to his praise, to praise of him, as it says there. Uh, let's see, we've got to go on here. Um, let's go down to um, verse 11, I guess, just in reason of time here. In him, or in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, in other words, the purpose that he's going to accomplish his will through Christ. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God has been at work in your life to accomplish his purpose or his will. That might have been through your parents. I, I know that was the case for me as I grew up. It might have been through some, your spouse maybe that you married later on. might have been through someone who he put in your life. But God has been at work. Uh, in his, through his means of grace, word, and sacrament in your life to accomplish his will, namely, your salvation. And that's, again, a great, a great thought. Um, so that, uh, verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We've got to wrap up here. In him, notice, uh, I didn't point this out, but throughout this hymn, or this prayer, the common uh, response or the reoccurring of in him, in him, in him, it's all about Christ. And that's up uh, four or five times in this section, okay? It's all about Christ who is at the core of this. Um, so verse 13, in him, Christ, uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Where do we get sealed uh, with the promised Holy Spirit, most of us, I'm, I'm thinking, at our baptism, right? The washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, okay? And he, he, who is the guarantee, or you might say the, the, uh, the pledge, the, um, the, the um, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You've got to be careful here. It's not that we don't have the inheritance yet, but until we reach the full fruition of it, which will be on the, on the last day, right? When Christ returns and we are all raised and, and body and soul go to be with him forever. Um, until we, uh, to the praise of his glory, okay? 
So just a great, it's actually a prayer. But again, notice it's not asking for anything. And it speaks of God in the third person. And it recounts the, the um, wonders that God has done for us. Choosing us before the foundation of the world. Accomplishing all through the death of his son. Giving us the inheritance that we have through Christ. And sealing it with the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which we received at baptism. So it is a great prayer. Uh, we could have probably done a, an hour just on that section alone. Okay? All right, we are out of time, so let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. <laughs>